Um, okay, so if you have a Bible, open it up to Philippians. Uh, we are in a series right now called Gratitude Always, and we're talking about really Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, and each week we are coming back to this same idea, this same fact, which is that Paul has so much gratitude. His approach to life and things is characterized by a tremendous amount of gratitude, and so we see that. Um, now, Philippians is one of those, you, if you have a Bible, you can open it to verse 19 of chapter 1. We're actually going to start five words before verse 19, but, you know, you could turn to verse 19 to be where, in the right spot. I read that just to be confusing. We're not starting at verse 18. I should just say we're starting at verse 18, shouldn't I? I realized that the second service. Uh, we'll say we're starting at verse 18, but not, but only the last five words. Um, Philippians is one of those it's one of those books in the Bible, it's one of those letters that you could spend years going through. I mean, you could look at it one verse at a time and pull so much out of it because there is so much in what Paul's writing to the church. There's a lot of incredible things going on at this time in the church, in Paul's life, and so it's, we're going through it at kind of a brisk pace, and you're going to feel that this morning as we go through this incredible passage that has so many things in it that you maybe even heard before if you're a believer. So Philippians, we're going to read 18, the last five words, words, until verse 30, and then we'll jump into this. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. I'll put it up on the screen. It'll be too small to see, but I'll put it up anyway. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw, I had, and now hear that I still have. We'll stop right there. So we mentioned in these last few weeks that Paul is in prison when he writes this. He's in prison in Rome for ministering to the gospel, for proclaiming the gospel. And what that means specifically is that he is literally chained to another person, a guard, all day, every day. And when that guard shift is up, they bring in another guard, they change, and they chain up to Paul. And he is chained to someone, he is with someone, probably a pretty hostile person, all day, every day, while he's under arrest and he's imprisoned in Rome. Um, this is totally a side note, but I think this is an incredibly bad use of resources in terms of jails go, right? Um, and if I was in charge, I would love to be the guy in charge of jails after this guy. Uh, and they'd be like, hey, we've got to cut down costs. Is there any, have any ideas? He's like, yeah, maybe two people to a guard. I don't know, three people to a guard? That would cut down on costs significantly. Great, you're brilliant, right? It makes very little sense to me. They do it this way, but they do. And um, so Paul, Paul, keep in mind, is 
literally the most successful evangelist who has ever lived on earth next to Jesus Christ himself, okay? Paul is the greatest evangelist that, that has, like, shared the gospel for the faith. He has seen more, he has led to more, he planted more churches, his efforts resulted in more than any other person's, single person's efforts next to Jesus Christ himself. Paul is amazingly gifted, he is incredibly articulate, he is able to translate the gospel, not just to communicate it to Jewish people, of of whom he is one of them, but also to Gentiles and people who don't know anything about the Jewish faith in the Old Testament. Paul is amazing at this, he is a good pastor, he is a good encourager. And here he is in chains for the gospel. And we read about this and you go, this has got to be devastating for Paul. This has got to be the most difficult thing ever. Why would God allow basically his MVP to be benched? Why would he allow his his best, most productive worker for the gospel to be imprisoned and for ultimately his life to end in this way? Now, uh, we see this again and again when we talk about people proclaiming the gospel. The truth of the matter is, for as much as God tells us in Scripture, go and proclaim this, I want people to know who I am, and calls us to give our lives to it, we see again and again and again people do that very thing. They give their entire life to the proclamation of the gospel only to be killed, to be imprisoned, or to have their ministry cut short in its prime. And we ask the question, why in the world would God do that? Why in the world would he allow that to happen for someone who's being so productive? One of the best-known missionaries in American history is Jim Elliott. And I say he's best-known because of his story, which is that he was an incredibly uh, well-educated, incredibly articulate, incredibly thoughtful uh, person in ministry as a young man in college. He, uh, He had a great personality. He was very charismatic. He considered becoming an actor at one point because he was so good in front of groups of people. And, uh, and people were, were telling him again and again and again, you should go into ministry here in the States. You should go into ministry in the States. And he said, no, I feel called to the people of, of Peru, of, of Ecuador. I feel called to South America to preach the gospel to a group of people specifically that are known for being hostile to outsiders. And so he goes and he begins his ministry. And shortly after he arrives with his team, as he is just preparing to finally be welcomed by these people into their own tribal area, into their own community, uh, they come to his camp and they kill him and the people that are working with him. And uh, he famously wrote in his journal before this. Uh, he was writing in his journal. They found it later. He was writing some words of Jesus that are recorded in Luke about, about giving of our lives for the sake of the gospel. And he famously said the words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And those words resound still to this day, not only because of his life, but because of his death. There's a man named Nabil Qureshi who died a year ago from stomach cancer. He was, uh, he was a Muslim and he converted to Christianity, and then he became an apologist for Christianity, and he wrote a book, finding, Seeking All of Finding, G- Finding Jesus. And uh, there were even those, as he was diagnosed over a year ago, and as he, as he died only a year later of this incredibly aggressive form of stomach cancer, um, there were those um, in the Muslim community who were actually like coming out and saying, uh, you know, this is punishment for being a heretic, this is punishment for abandoning your faith and proclaiming this new gospel and being a person who's giving their life to this thing. They're actually praying for his downfall, praying for him to die from this cancer. And he ultimately did succumb to it, even though he had a wife and two young children and an incredible ministry. I mean, an incredibly effective ministry. And we watch this happen to people time and again. People who are gifted, who are called, 
people who have successful, um, fruitful ministries that they're doing. And we say, what is the math on this exactly? Why exactly is this something that God allows to have happen? Or how about this? How about Paul is a man who's devoted his entire life to the gospel. He cares about one thing, preaching and people following Jesus. He cares about that one thing so singularly and so passionately that he has given his entire life over to that thing. He is not married, and he has said, uh, being married would probably make it more challenging for me to do what I do right now, which is to travel so freely, to give so much time to these churches and these church plants and evangelism, to be imprisoned, to be free to be imprisoned, right? A guy who's given up the idea of family life, a guy who has walked away from his religious heritage and upbringing because he's being seen by the very people that he was, was one of as a heretic, as a person who's now following Jesus like all these other crazy Jesus followers and not a Jewish person raised in the community he was raised in. But he is absolutely passionate and focused on this thing. If you ever want an example of a person who is giving their life to something in a profound way and is saying that I am solely focused on this one goal in my life, it is Paul. And he seems so incredibly fulfilled in what he is doing in pursuing the advancement of the gospel. And now at this part of his ministry, the peak of his ministry, instead of being in a position where he could go visit these churches, see countless people that he has led to Christ who have led other people to Christ, and to see more churches planted and more churches begun, he is imprisoned. He is chained to another man all day. Now, I'm sure he made the most of it, right? Who wants to be that guard chained to Paul? No doubt. Conversion, right? Time to change the guards. Conversion, time to change the guards. This was the way he worked. He was so incredibly compelling as an evangelist. And you know there's a part of him that's like, all right, well, at least I'll, I'll get these guys, right? But there were even other people in prison that were preaching the gospel. And he said they were preaching it for the wrong reasons. Because for some reason, they thought that it was this noble thing to do or it might bring them, uh, it might bring them you know, notoriety or something like that. What he is experiencing here, Paul, the traveling, evangelist, church-planting, mega-apostle, Paul, who can do none of those things from a jail cell, what he is experiencing is not just devastating, but it is catastrophic. And catastrophic is the word that you use when you describe a situation that is so bad that it has ceased to be viable. When something happens to you that is catastrophic, it ends you. It redefines you because the you that was you before no longer can be when you come out of the other side of it. You're ready for some exciting definitions. One of the definitions of the word catastrophic is involving a sudden and large-scale alteration in the state of something. An alteration in the state, it is that big and profoundly affecting of you in your life that it changes the state of you. And the, and the example given of this is a person nearing a black hole. I think we could all agree that that would be catastrophic for the human body. And another definition is simply this, extremely unfortunate or unsuccessful. Not just unfortunate, but unsuccessful. I was going about my life, things were going okay, something catastrophic happened. My life now became unsuccessful. Not just harder, more difficult, a little bit more challenging, but the very life that I was living and leading is over. I can no longer be that person because of these things that have happened. What in the world would Paul's response be to something this devastating? A person who has lost something that is more important to them probably than anything that we would experience that we would say makes our life meaningful and valuable. This is why we read the, the last five words of the of the verse before where we start. This is his response to this catastrophic thing in his life. Yes, 
and I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Welcome to reading a letter by Paul, where you read something and you go, nope, right? Like, not even close, not even close to the way I would feel or to the way I would live. You got to be kidding me. Who would ever feel this way in this situation? Paul does, but why? This guy must be nuts. Yes, and I will rejoice. How on earth can Paul say that? You lose your family, a group of people that you love more than anyone else in the world, like this. You say, I rejoice. You are passionate about your work, about the things you're accomplishing, about the career you've been building, the reputation you've had. Simply this, the thing you've invested most of your life in professionally. And somehow you lose it. Somehow it's gone. Somehow it's over like this. Do you say, I rejoice? I've been with my wife, Ellie, for, for we've been together since we were 16. We've been together almost 20 years now. And at this point, we're not two individual people, whether we like it or not. We are like interwoven and intertwined people. Something were to happen to her, something were to happen to me, to one of us, the other person, if one of us was gone, the other person, part of them would be gone too. I rejoice. Would we say that? You think of God giving you a passion for something, being good at something, saying, I want my life to be about me being able to do this thing and be this person. This is my identity. And then it's gone like that because of the circumstances of your life. I rejoice when we say that. Why can Paul say this? Why can Paul say this instead of being curled up in a fetal position on the floor of a jail cell saying, how God can this happen? God, this makes no sense. How can Paul say this? The answer to how he can say it is in verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is uttering one of the most famous phrases he will ever utter, one of the shortest and simplest, one of the most well-known, and yet one of the least understood. Because simply the words, to live is Christ, don't make a lot of, even grammatically, they don't seem to make a lot of sense to us. Paul's not saying, I live like Christ. He's not saying, I live with the label of a person who follows Christ. He's saying, for me, to live is Jesus. What is he saying? Paul is teaching us in this passage that it is not the circumstances of your life it is not whether things go well for you or ill for you, but it is the way you define life itself that will determine whether you stand or whether you fall in this world. It is not your circumstances. It is how you define life itself that determines everything. And this is Paul's explanation for why he can say, I will rejoice while his very ministry seems to be ending and he is in chains. He could say, I rejoice, because he has completely redefined what life even was to begin with, and because of that, he can rejoice. 
What would it look like to do that? What would it look like to actually step back and say, what am I living for? What is life for me? What is life? That seems like a hard question to ask, but it's not because you have to be a philosopher or because you have to be so introspective. It's because our lives all look so similar. Right? I, I take my life, I take my house and my stuff, I take my family, I take my budget, I take the teams that I root for, I take the vacations that I go on, I take the relationships that I have, I, I take the, 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 the hobbies that I choose to be involved in, and then I go to the house of the person that lives next to me maybe, and, and I look at their life, and I look at their stuff, and I look at their budget. I shouldn't do this, but, you know, go through their mail or something, I don't know. You look at their family, you look at the Christmas card that comes out each year, you look at the teams that they cheer for, you look at all of it, and you say, how different, really, do these lives seem? What am I living for? What is life defined as for me if my life looks so much like the lives of everyone else around me, which is often the case? Paul says to live is Christ. What that means is that I, I really draw life itself from the person of who Jesus is, from the person of Jesus Christ. That if I'm connected to him personally, I have life. And if I'm not, I experience death. It's not really about the circumstances or the other stuff that I have. It's about him. It's about a connection that I have with him. If I have that, I have life, meaning I can grow, I can thrive, I can be blessed, I can experience abundance, I can experience joy and peace. I can experience gratefulness always no matter what's happening in my life. Because life itself is Christ. It isn't any of those things. The people who followed Jesus followed him because they encountered him and they saw life in him. They said, I see life here. Whether it was because he healed them or because they saw him heal people, whether it was the very words and the teachings that he brought, Regardless of what it was, people interacted with him, and the ones that chose to follow him did so because they saw life in him. It wasn't because they felt guilty. It wasn't because he had more rules than the next guy. It wasn't because he didn't care about any rules, and they were tired of those things. It was because they saw life in him. And so they, they pursued him for that thing. It redefined what life was for those people. And then Jesus told the very people that came to him to follow him, he said, now you have to forsake all other things. And what does that mean? Does that mean hate everything else? Does that mean get rid of all of it? No. He said those other things, all of the other things that are life for everyone else, they can't be life for you anymore because I'm life for you. You have to find a way to oftentimes have those things, but to not have those things be life to you. You can have relationships and a family, but you can't live for them. You can have a job and be great at something and have everyone else in the world look at you and say, that's who they are, is the person that does that thing. But you can't live for that. You can have a country, but you can't live for it. You can have a passion that is like hardwired into who you are, but you can't live for it. Because life is in Christ. So these people followed him. A lot, of these, a lot of people followed Jesus. 
They followed him. They said, all right, fine, we'll forsake other things. We'll follow you. Life is found in you. But it sounds like a pretty difficult life. Sounds like a lot has to be given up. A lot has to be let go of, right? I mean, if everyone else is living for other things and these people choose to live for Christ and only find life really truly in him, then they must, like, they don't get to experience life from all those other things. And what does that look like? And how hard must that be? And how painful must that be? What happens to a person who decides to define life this way and forsake everything else? Here's what happened. The people that followed Jesus, that truly followed Jesus, became more joyful. They became profoundly joyful, more joyful than anyone else. They became more at peace than anyone else around them with the circumstances of what was going on. They loved more than anyone else around them, and they loved indiscriminately. They loved different kinds of people. Whether there was a plague and people had to be tended to and, and, and cared for, uh, or whether they were the wealthiest people, the ones that everyone wanted to be around, the Christians loved those people. The followers of Jesus loved those people indiscriminately, when often others didn't. They were unaffected by politics, by the fears and the cultural shifts that are constantly going on around them. Because their life wasn't in those things. Their life wasn't in needing to have a certain kind of relationship with a certain kind of person. Their life wasn't in some codependent need to help all the people that are sick and poor and hurting and and to feel good about yourself in that way. Because when, when life is found in those individual things, then you do those things to an unhealthy degree. You're too attached to those things. You can only love so much. You can only do so much or care so much. But when life is found in Jesus, you're free then to experience a kind of love and joy and peace, a kind of hopefulness that, that, that you can't when you depend on these other things for life. The people living for Christ didn't need someone to tell them to care about a group of people because now it's culturally relevant to care about a group of people. They cared about groups of people indiscriminately. Christians cared about women, about slaves, about outcasts, about criminals, about the sick, about the infectious, They cared about individuals, they cared about families. They cared about the lowliest of low, and they cared about the highest. They respected authority, they paid taxes to Caesar. They didn't try to rebel. And at the same time, they ministered and reached out to the prostitutes, to the very tax collectors that were robbing people of money more than they should have. Christians were people like Paul, who were educated at the top of society. Christians were people like Mary Magdalene, people who were at the bottom. Christians have been behind some of the greatest social movements and some of the greatest progress in the world because they don't need the world the way that it is now. And they don't depend on the status quo. They're not desperately trying to keep everything just the way it is. If you ever meet a Christian who's desperately trying to keep everything just the way it is, that's because they find life in that, not in Jesus. When life is in Christ, we can live without needing these things. We can enjoy them, and we can be connected to them and care about them, but we don't need them. I've been reading a lot recently about the Oregon Trail, so you guys are going to hear a lot about the Oregon Trail probably in the next couple months. And um, my, my son has figured this out, and he, uh, he tried to use it on me last night. It was, uh, his mom's out of town, I was putting them to bed, and I walked by his room, and it's, he should have been asleep already. And he goes, hey, Dad, I have a question for you. I go, yeah. I said, what? And he goes, are you going to read your Oregon Trail book right now? And I said, I have a book that says the Oregon Trail on it. And, he, and it's not like a kid's book. I'm actually reading real books about it, okay? But 
I started with a kid's book, but I worked my way up. And he goes, he goes, uh, he goes uh, because I want, I want you to tell me about the Oregon Trail right now. I was like, why do you want me to tell you about the Oregon Trail? I just like listening to you tell me about things that you like. And I'm like, this is diabolical, right? This is like so good, this, this, the ability to stay awake at night, right? Like my dad loves to talk a lot. He thinks he knows everything. So, so my last-ditch effort is going to just be, will you please come in and tell me the thing you're currently excited about in life, right? right? And, uh, and I was like, no. And then that was it, right? And then I went and read my Oregon Trail book and kept it to myself, right? I'm reading about the Oregon Trail now, and one of the things that's fascinating about it is the first group of uh, pioneers, the first group of people that really made the overland journey together in a group, covered wagons and all that stuff. Uh, prior to that, you know, Lewis and Clark, and there had been trappers, and there had been people that had gone on horseback individually and in smaller parties, but no one had really made the trip as an entire group of people permanently settling down as a result of what they did. They didn't make that trip because it didn't make any sense to make that trip. It wasn't like crossing the Atlantic from, uh, from Europe. It wasn't like, uh, like, like what people often did in America, where you got on a boat, you came over here, you got a life started, you got some kind of business started, you maybe grew some crops, did something, and then you sent for your family, and they came over, and then you had a new life for them to live with you, right? You could get all the crazy stuff out of the way, and then you could send for people, and they could come. You couldn't do that on the Overland Expedition, on the Overland Trail, to get all the way to Oregon. It was too, it was too questionable. It was unsafe. No one knew exactly how you would get that, like, uh, all the stuff that you had there. So the only way to really do it would actually be to go permanently with your entire life, with your entire family. And, and, and the other reason, and this is kind of a big, and the reason why it hadn't happened is because, uh, and I don't want to get too far into the birds and the bees or anything on this here, but I'll just say this. If you want to build a community, okay, you can't just have a bunch of guys, okay? You need women as well, uh, because that's how it works. And they, nobody was going to bring women along on the Overland uh, Trail. Uh, and so even, there's a man named, um, I think his name is Horace Greeley. I know something Greeley. And he coined the phrase, am I right? I'm going to ask a high schooler, right? Yeah, okay. He coined the phrase manifest destiny, right? The idea that man would go and they would make their own destiny, the American, this American ideal. He coined this phrase, right? He was all about this idea that this is who we are as a people. But years before that, he was quoted as saying, I would not trade all the Americas in the world, all the versions of America that we ever could be, to send a single defenseless white woman across the Overland Trail on horseback. And he says that because he's like, it's so dangerous. It's so crazy, right? Uh, there's, there's, there's people out there that, that probably want to kill them, that, that it's like a hostile environment. Uh, no, absolutely women shouldn't go. People shouldn't go. Just a couple of men. And you can never really take and really settle by doing something like that. And so the first people that actually traveled across that trail, the first large group of people were a woman who was a missionary and her husband who was a doctor and the group of people that they brought with them. And why did they go? They didn't go to set up civilization so they could make a bunch of money, so they could build a new society. They went because they wanted to reach an unreached group of people. They went even though it didn't really make a lot of sense to go because at that time it didn't make sense for your family to go. Why would you uproot and leave everything that you had and go all the way to Oregon just to start a new life when chances are the journey would kill you along the way? Chances are something would happen. Uh, so they went. These Christians went. They went motivated by something that wasn't entirely rational because they didn't need things to work out perfectly in order for this to succeed. And because, um, because one of them was a great writer, uh, and she wrote back all kinds of things about their account over the trail, uh, saying things like, the natives have been very friendly and warm to us, saying things like, uh, 
uh, I, I, th- this is very interesting. She, says, uh, she said, I am in better health now than I ever was before. It, it is argued that that sentence led to the mass groups of people coming over after that. Because we're so concerned with our health and well-being, and somebody was like, no, it's actually pretty nice out of here, you know, fresh air, it's actually pretty good for you, you won't necessarily die if you come out. People are like, okay, fine, it's kind of safe, right? And then what happened? Then everybody else came out, right? This is something that we see again and again and again with people that are motivated by something like faith in Christ, is they do things that no one else is going to actually get up and do because it doesn't make sense to do it. Business-wise, does not make sense to go out there as the first group of people. For your family, it does not make sense. Go 100 miles and stop. That makes sense, right? Don't go all the way. Why would you do that? But for these people, it made sense because they wanted to reach natives. They wanted to reach people who hadn't been reached yet with the gospel, and they wanted to go all the way with it. And they did. When we are compelled by Christ, by the gospel, we will not live and behave as the world does because life itself is not the same thing. Life is not defined the same way to begin with. And that changes the way that we live and the things that we do. Uh, there, was a, there was a gentleman in this church who went here for a long time and he passed away recently, Will Wanvig. And uh, I remember seeing Will every Sunday after the service, standing right by the back door, um, waiting for his ride to pick him up. And I would talk to him every week then. Uh, Will passed away a few months ago. And as he was in kind of the last weeks of his life, Pastor Dave and I went to visit him and went to his home. And he was in a bed and he was sleeping most of the day. And he wasn't really, um, you know, talking much and awake much. But when we got to see him and when we, got, when we went in, he woke up and we prayed with him. We prayed for him. Dave prayed and I prayed. And when I prayed, he fell asleep, which is not, this is not the first time that's happened to me. And he falls asleep. And then when I said amen, he, he, like, he like woke up and he... Uh, and then he just like instinctively, the moment he woke up, he started praying for both of us. He starts praying for us. And I couldn't fully understand what he was saying, um, but I could tell that he was praying for Dave, and then he moved on and was praying for me. And the reason that I think something like that is so incredibly powerful is because for a guy like Will, to live is Christ. You spend your whole life wanting people to know about Jesus, wanting to proclaim Jesus, wanting to pray for people and shepherd people and help people see the truth of this thing. To the point to where on your own deathbed, at a point when you have every excuse and every right to say, I need from people, I don't give to people, it is still to live, to have any breath in your lungs at all, to live is Christ. And I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to have Christ as well. In the very last moments of life. And I talked with some people after the first service who were sharing other examples of me of the exact same thing that happened with other people in their life who did the same thing. Because it is true that when life is defined as Christ, that even to the point of death, things are different for you. But we still don't, haven't gotten away from that question of why would God allow this to happen to Paul still? Why would God allow him to be benched? Why would he allow him to be jailed? Why would he allow this kind of suffering on the very people who have been the most faithful to respond to the call for the gospel? And we read the answer to this in one of the things that Paul says here. He says uh, early on in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now that word there, deliverance, in the King James, it's literally translated, and this is the best translation. It's poorly translated in the ESV. But the literal translation for this word is salvation. 
that this will work out for my salvation. And this same word is used every other point in the New Testament as the word salvation, including when Peter is crossing over the water, he's trying to walk on water, and he starts to fall under the water, and he cries out to Jesus to rescue me. This is the word he uses, salvation, save me. Now, what's interesting is that Paul also says here, and you can see how schizophrenic it is, back and forth. He's like, I think I'm going to get out of this. I don't think I'm going to get out of this. I think I'm going to come see you. I probably won't come see you. You're like, like, where is this guy at, right? He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if he's going to actually be rescued from the situation itself. And yet Paul's words are this. What is happening, I rejoice in, because the very thing that's happening to me right now, being in prison, being in chain, chain next to this guy, is bringing about my very salvation. Now, Paul believes in faith in Jesus alone, that faith by God's grace alone, which means he doesn't think he's earning heaven. But what it does mean is this. It tells us the role that suffering plays in the life of somebody who says, for me to live is Christ. Paul is not saying, okay, everybody, I'm going to get out. God's going to rescue me. He's saying that this situation is where real life is found because this suffering is making me into the man that I want to be. This suffering is making me into the person who I truly want to be. This is where my life will be found. This is where salvation will be found. And who can say that, right? Who can say suffering is what makes me into the person that I want to be? Well, if we live... As Christ, if we live Christ, then that is exactly what can and does happen. And how does suffering make us into the person that we hopefully would want to be in living in Christ? Well, it's very simple. It refines us. It changes us. When you live for other things, pain and loss and suffering do something terrible. They do something really, truly devastating. They have the power to take away the things that we live for. And this is why so many of us are terrified of suffering and of loss. Because suffering and loss have the power to take away the very things that we live for. And some of us have lost things. And we have lost life as we've lost those things. Some of us haven't lost anything and just live in a perpetual state of fear that we will lose the things that we're living for. Because we recognize that without that thing, I don't have life. When you live for Christ, those very same things actually make you more like him. The suffering, the pain, the loss. It makes you more like him and it brings you closer to him. And it connects you more deeply to the very source of life itself, which is Jesus. Matthew Henry, a commentator, wrote hundreds of years ago when he was, comment- when he was writing about um, pain and suffering. He refers to God as the great alchemist. Alchemy is uh, this practice in medieval times of trying to figure out a way to turn lead into gold. Now, if you've ever tried to do anything involving remodeling a house in Oregon, you know how valuable lead is. You know how close people want to get to it. George, our trustee chair, is like, oh gosh, don't get me started, right? You know exactly what lead means for all of us. If it's in pain, if it's in the walls, if it's in the floors, nope, we're done. I'm done. It's over, right? It is toxic to us. 
And there was a time at which people were devoting themselves full time to trying to figure out a way to convert the least useful thing that we had to the most useful thing we could have, gold. And that was called alchemy. And Matthew Henry refers to God as an alchemist and says he is the great alchemist because he takes suffering, which is lead. It is the thing that we don't want, that we have no use for, and we will avoid at all costs, and he turns that very thing into gold. That that is what God does. That is what we see him do in Scripture, and here's the really incredible part. For thousands of years since the Bible was written, it is what we have seen him do in the lives of people who have said, I live for Christ. Lead has turned to gold, and it isn't magic, but it is supernatural. And the hard truth is that it is far too easy for us to say we live for Christ when really we live for everything else. It is. And it is when we suffer that we're confronted with this. It's when we run the risk of losing things that we find life in. We freak out, we panic, we give up, we turn our back on God, other people. We're embittered, we're hardened, we're calloused, we're hopeless. That is when we see what we've really been living for. And that it often is in Christ. We think because we grew up a certain way, we're a certain part of a certain family, we identify as a Christian, we believe certain things about God, that we believe things about God, that we know things and truths about God, that that's the same as living Christ. And yet we still, when we lose, when we suffer, we're confronted with the fact that I feel like I'm losing life here. I don't feel like I'm gaining life through this. And for someone like Paul to be able to say that it's making me into the man I want to be is the opposite of that. Because the opposite of what Paul's saying is catastrophe. It is a pain that is catastrophic because it ends and redefines our very life itself, not in a good way. And we wake up the next day and we say, well, life's over. Now I've got to make a new one, start a new one, have a new one. And we hear this, and so many would hear this, and I think maybe even rightfully, maybe I say that because I'm more of a skeptical person myself, but rightfully would think, so that's it. Christianity is just, it's like a, it's like a crutch. It's like a hospital bed. It's like a salve. It's like a coping mechanism. Christianity, faith, is the thing that we have when we don't have anything else and we're suffering, right? How do we comfort people? How do we make them feel better? We tell them that, you know, God's there, and they can hope in that, and they can trust in that, and they can feel for that. Well, why did any of these people do the things that they did? Why did they follow Christ? Why did they choose Christ? It was for one reason. We see it with Paul and we see it with the rest. Because it was true. That was it. They were convinced it was true. They were convinced that it was true. Paul was so convinced that it was true that he died for it. Our our history is filled with people who have given their lives for a religious belief because they heard from someone else that it was true. And it fulfills a part of them in their life, and it gives them a sense of identity, and so they are now willing to give their life for this thing that they believe that they've heard from other people, removed from other people, is true. Only in the Christian faith, only with the original followers of Jesus, the disciples and the apostles, do we encounter a group of people who were the eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus, the closest friends of the ministry of Jesus, and they died proclaiming that everything he said and did was true. Peter was martyred in Rome, and he asked to be crucified upside down so he wouldn't die the way Jesus did. 
Paul is beheaded. Andrew is crucified in Greece. Thomas is killed by soldiers. Sorry, John is beheaded. Andrew is crucified in Greece. Thomas is killed by soldiers. Philip converts the wife of an official. The official gets mad, has him killed. Matthew dies in Ethiopia. Bartholomew is martyred. James is stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot is stoned for not worshiping the sun god when everyone's being called to do that at a gathering. Matthias is killed by burning, by being burned alive. John dies in exile on Patmos. These were the people that knew better than anyone else whether anything that Jesus was saying was true or was real, whether any of this stuff was real. These are the people. And they died for it because it was true. And I could do, I could, I could talk for a long time about why I believe that it is true, why I know that it is true. And you could probably talk about knowing that it's true, but I will just tell you this that we live in a world that has already presumed that it is not true. And now every explanation that we have for everything that is happening around us has to, has to be an explanation that does not involve God or does not involve Jesus or does not involve anything supernatural. Do you know that the best explanation that we have for the existence of the universe right now is a multi-universe, multi-dimensional theory? Because... Mathematicians have shown us over the last 10 or 15 years that mathematically speaking, the likelihood of a Big Bang leading to any kind of a universe that could, that could sustain life or contain the, the rules of physics that we experience today, that the only way that a bang could even result in something tangible is that there would have to be an infinitesimal number, an infinite number of parallel universes and in one of them, life can exist in this way. An infinite number of parallel dimensions. That this is, mathematically speaking, the only way that we can make sense out of the idea that a bang could lead to what we have. But that's the best that we have. And so that's what we're going on right now. That Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, the most evangelistic atheist that I've, that I've seen today, argues that we cannot fully explain the origin of biological life on earth without saying that some agent came from outside the earth, and he would say it's not unlikely to say that it could be aliens or something like that, because the likelihood of random processes leading to the life that we experience is so low, but that's the best that we have. That a current going theory currently, right now, is that reality is not real, and that we live in a computer simulation. Because mathematically speaking, the number, of, of the number of extinct ancient alien civilizations that would exist, and there is another competing theory that says that there is no way that any intelligent life could exist outside of this earth, because if it did, it would have already contacted us and we would be conquered and colonized by it by now, based on the age of the universe. That over the last several decades, that as math has begun to show us the actual numbers of these things and the scale of these things and the likelihood of the things that we have proposed, that it may have become increasingly less plausible, and yet, it's still the best that we have, and so it's what we're going on. And so for someone to say that God created this is not insane, it is not crazy, but I can tell you that it is not an option for most people to even consider. These people believe these things, they follow Jesus, and they believe that life was found in Christ and nothing else, 
because they believed that it was true. It wasn't because they wanted it to be true. It wasn't because they had a really bad year and they needed something to help them. It was because they were like, this is real. And they saw that life was found there as well. And so they forsake everything else. And they still had life. That they died proclaiming Jesus, sharing the gospel, because they believed that even death was gain. How can God allow this to happen to the people that are furthering his mission, the gospel? Because we only see pain as bad. We only see suffering as something that's to be avoided, especially in America, especially in the Western world in which we live in such great comfort. Suffering has no place in our world and in our lives. Suffering used to be, and loss, and and pain, and they used to be such a normal part of the lives of every person, of every family, that it wasn't seen the way it is today. And we always ask the question, how could God allow this? How could God allow this? How could God allow this? Because it can only take away our life. It can only ruin our plans. But it cannot take away life. Because to live is Christ means that all I can do, all suffering can do, is it can bring us closer to life itself. Suffering can be our salvation. It can lead us more to Christ. And for many of us, that's painful because it means it simply reveals to us all of the things that we need to let go of. The things that we really truly live for. When I talk about truth, that this is ultimately why people believe this, why the early adopters, the, the, or the people that, be, that proclaimed the gospel so much and gave their entire lives for it, that that's why these people believed it and argued for it and defended it to the death. I believe that this is truth. If you don't believe that this is truth, that this is real, that this is where life is found, that I would implore you to ask that question again, to consider if this is true and this is where life is, then that means that everything else leads to death, no matter how rewarding it might seem for everyone else around you. And if you're somebody who says, I I believe in Jesus, I follow Jesus, I agree with Jesus, I'm a Christian, I, I like being around here, I like these things, there's so much wisdom in the Bible, there's so much... Uh, There's so much morality in the Bible, and I sure love a good dose of morality. There's so much hope and encouragement and happy thoughts and feelings in the Bible. But I can't genuinely say that to live is Christ for me. Then I would implore you to ask yourself, what then am I living for? And what do I have to hope for and look to in that thing to bring me life? That it might bring you life now, It might feel like it brings you the promise of life later, but it will not ultimately bring you true, full life. It will not bring you the kind of abundance and joy and love and peace that is separate from all of this stuff around us so that regardless of what happens around us, we can still live lives of abundance, that we can still even be grateful always in things. Suffering can bring us closer to Christ because Christ himself suffered so much that we understand who he is, that we can relate even to what he went through and that we know that suffering draws us nearer to him. 
We're going to take communion um, as, we, as we sing and, and spend some more time in worship. And as we do that, we're going to have ushers and they're going to have communion. Um, you can go up to them, you can take it, and then you can take it back to your seat. We're not going to, I'm not going to come back up here and lead everybody through it. Just at, at your own pace, whenever you want to, find an usher with the communion elements, grab them, and you can take communion by yourself as we sing through these last songs. One last thing I just want to say, I was at the library this last week with my kids, and I was in the children's section, you know, getting books on the Oregon Trail. And, uh, and there was a book there in the children's section that caught my attention because it had a name on it that you would not expect to see on a book in the library, which is Ecclesiastes. It is a book on Ecclesiastes, right? And, uh, and I look at this book, and I open it up, and you can't see the words here, it's too small, but it says on the top picture, a time to be born, and it says in the bottom one, a time to die. And the entire book is filled with children's pictures and talking about both the highs and the lows involved with suffering in life. And I thought to myself, you never see this in children's books, Right? Because we don't consider the lows and the suffering and the pain to be a part of life that we want to acknowledge. Our hope is to protect our kids and shield them from as much suffering and pain as humanly possible. The reason why this is in Ecclesiastes, why this comes from the Bible, is because if life is found in Christ, then there truly is a time for everything. There is a time for joy and there is a time for suffering. And both have a place in the kingdom because both lead us more to Christ that those can ultimately be good things, purposeful things, hope-filled and life-giving things because of the way the gospel works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your son. And we thank you for the fact that when, when we're honest, many of us, most of us, probably don't truly find life in Christ. We find it in other things. That's the reason our lives look like everyone around us, regardless of what we say and do here on Sunday mornings. Our prayer, God, is that you would do whatever you have to do to bring us to a place of finding life in Christ. And I, and I say that prayer with great fear because I know what that often means in my life and in the lives of, of, of those of our church, Lord. Father, I pray specifically for anyone here who does not yet know you, who is not yet following you, who's maybe on the periphery, hearing this, thinking this, mulling over this, but doesn't yet look to Christ as life. God, I pray right now that they would give themselves over to you, that they would believe that your son died for them, that there's nothing they can do to earn being a part of your kingdom or being your child. They simply need to come to you and to ask you for your forgiveness, to ask you to welcome them in, and to then look to Christ for life. Not rules, not work, not self-sacrifice. God, I pray that all of us would worship you right now, take communion right now, having done that, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. God, we recognize that you, you are love and that true joy can be found in you, God. When we talk about Life, we're talking about joy. We're talking about the things that we find joy in, that we are fulfilled by. And oftentimes it feels like what we read about in your word is burdensome or makes us feel guilty and makes us feel like there's more we need to do and less joy that we maybe even can have. And I'm reminded, God, of, of the Old Testament prophets, Lord. We read about, about Nehemiah and Ezra telling the people as they delivered your word to those people the people were feeling burdened and overwhelmed. It says they were actually weeping when they 
were confronted with the truth of your word and your law and what you expected of them. And that the prophet's response to the people was to go and eat and to drink, to be merry, and to have the joy of the Lord and for that to be their strength, Lord. God, that is our prayer this morning. Our prayer is that our strength would be through us finding joy in you. That our joy in you would give us strength and that it would be a kind of strength and it would be a kind of life that can handle anything, Lord, because life is not found in those things but in you, God. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.